0: Okay so here we are in Acts chapter 6. We're looking at the very first part of it. The first few verses there. And this is a valuable text for several reasons. Uh, one is this passage in its sort of germinal form is really the basis for how church has been organized um, down through the centuries. How how to get things done while keeping the main thing the main thing. How um, the church came to function the way it does it's it's very kind of a key text about that very important foundation for how we do church here but in our current environment um, the incident that begins this chapter has taken on kind of a significant matter for our time so I'm going to focus on that today and then next week we'll talk about uh, church structure and things like that Um, some people and more people than usual these days point to this as a New Testament example of discrimination and it it could be that Uh, at least there's a complaint of discrimination so in a time when there's been so much talk of disparities between various groups in our country and racial tension which we all know is all over the news and um, kind of promoted in the universities and things like that it's inevitable that anything so dominant in the culture is going to find its way into the church and become an issue within even the evangelical Bible believing church so how to address racial issues in america is a huge and increasingly divisive issue in the church at large so handling it biblically and with wisdom it has become a real challenge because there's not only disagreement about the problem itself there are big disagreements how to even look at the problem um, slavery and Jim Crow and things like that from our past were very cut and dry justice issues at least they are now looking back those are kind of easy ones but now we have to talk about critical race theory and intersectionality and microaggressions and reparations and education and the SATs and policing and the court system and so the discussion gets really complicated there's a lot of things going on and there's definitely an ideological component that that that's what we're most concerned with today and there's even a financial component that's got to be factored into these things I mean there's a big business and lots of money is to be made by people who get paid to bring into corporations or the government or the school systems anti-racist consciousness raising it's usually called diversity training and of course everything gets caught up in politics as well which usually means a lot more heat than light is being shed on a particular subject. So, And I can't solve all of those issues or problems for you. Uh, it would really take weeks to discuss them properly or fairly. But we can talk about how the church has handled these questions in the past rightly and wrongly. And how the apostles decisive action provides a good model for us in Acts chapter 6 when issues of discrimination come up. So for a contemporary uh, example for issues in the church I'm going to focus mainly on the Southern Baptist Convention because it's really big right there right now and it's um, and then we'll talk about Acts chapter 6. The Southern Baptist Convention I think is still the largest Protestant denomination in America it has been for a long long time and I think that's still true and today it's very close to splitting over this issue actually dividing up. People are leaving the denomination on both sides of this issue because nobody's happy with how things are being handled. That's about, this is like 180 years, 180 years after the first split of the Southern Baptist Convention. Actually the Southern Baptist Convention came into being in the 1840s when the issue of slaveholding split the National Baptist Fellowship at that particular time. The national organization would not permit slaveholders to become missionaries and being a slave owner was disqualifying for the mission field. And the South, which was economically dependent on slavery, and slavery was legal there, so they thought that they were being unfairly treated. And that was the seed that led to the split um, over the morality of slavery. So th- there was a Southern Baptist convention, and then there were Northern Baptist and Western Baptist and all this kind of stuff. So. Um, also the Methodist Church split along exactly the same lines and the Presbyterian Church split along those lines there was a Southern Methodist Church and a Southern Presbyterian Church I've got in my hand one of my most valuable possessions something I treasure more than almost anything else I own and it's a little book and it was published 160 years ago so if you look in the front it was published in 1860 and Methodist circuit writing preachers used to have two books with them. They had the Bible and they had the Methodist Book of Discipline. And this is the Methodist Book of Discipline that was published in 1860. This book was, uh, came online one year before the Civil War started. And so the Methodist preachers would go around. The method part of Methodism was making sure everybody was being a good Christian. So they would travel on horseback. And this had to be a little. It doesn't weigh anything. It's a light little book. Everything you need to know about being a minister is in this book. For the Methodist church in those days. And then they'd have their Bibles. So this is it. But I wanted to share something from this. Um, There's a section in here on being a good Christian. And it basically says. It is therefore expected of all who continue therein that they should continue to evidence their desire of salvation first by doing no harm by avoiding every kind of evil especially that which is most generally practiced such as the taking of the name of God in vain the profaning of the day of the Lord either by doing ordinary work therein or by buying or selling drunkenness buying or selling spiritous liquors or drinking them unless cases of extreme necessity and then it says with italics to emphasize it the buying and selling of men women and children with an intention to enslave them and then it goes on with a long list so pretty early on in that list it's uh, saying if you're a Christian you cannot be involved in any way in the buying and selling or enslaving of human beings and then at the back of this book the very last page before the uh, index there's a, a section that has a question and answer and it says what shall be done for the extirpation of the evil of slavery answer we declare that we are as much as ever convinced of the great evil of slavery we believe that the buying selling or holding of human beings to be used as chattels is contrary to the laws of God and nature and inconsistent with the golden rule and with that rule in our discipline which requires all who desire to continue among us to do no harm and to avoid evil of every kind We therefore affectionately admonish all our preachers and people to keep themselves pure from this great evil and to seek its extirpation that means it's knocking it out of existence by all lawful and Christian means. So um, that stance split the Methodist church twenty years before this was published so this was obviously a book that was not a southern Methodist um, discipline book but, a, but the, a northern one or a national one beyond that. So it's amazing that southern Methodists would split over slavery. Probably more amazing than even the Baptist because John Wesley who founded the Methodist church he wrote that American slavery was quote the vilest that ever saw the sun unquote. He was a passionate abolitionist. After the Civil War Um, racial issues persisted in dividing the church over segregation and Jim Crow and things like that and with few exceptions all too few southern white Christianity chose to embrace racial segregation. um, Worse than that they actually created a theology that no one had ever come up with before a theology of segregation claiming that the Bible teaches that God meant for races to live apart and be separate and not interact with each other. So now listen real Christians embraced this theology. Bible believing teachers, seminary professors, competent theologians and godly Christians in and, and many, many ways in their life they accepted that theology. They created and embraced a, a whole set of doctrines that was unknown in church history all to support a system of oppression that they were trying to maintain and I've met people that still believe that stuff there aren't very many around but I have met them Uh, they still exist so there's a warning there for all of us believers we can be that blind about certain issues um, and be faithful to the Lord in many other areas we can be willfully that blind to uphold our own prejudices and we need to be really careful about that. I say willfully because these sins were not ignorance. I just read you there um, most Christians regarded slavery as a great evil a horrible evil and godly men pointed out the evils of American slavery and the unjust oppression that was going on based on race that was being pointed out all along and that those voices were just silence they were rejected by Christians in the south. So that history has to be acknowledged and it requires deep repentance if there's any prejudice or injustice that's still there. It is right I believe for institutions to repent of that as well. In fact the main seminary of the Southern Baptist Church um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary just a couple of years ago did a major study a hundred page document of studying their own past and the horrible racial injustices that were done even within the seminary denying people access to it and those kinds of issues uh, promoting slavery racial segregation teaching the theology of segregation. Um, I think it's appropriate for an institution like that to repent of that and say we were wrong in the past. Now all of this teaches us that we need to be willing to carefully examine our own assumptions. So we don't want to be arrogant about our positions. Now eventually America began to change especially after World War II. I mean we defeated and crushed two world powers that were completely dedicated to the idea of racial superiority. Not only the Nazis but the Japanese had the same kind of philosophy that they were a superior race to other races. That's why they could slaughter the Chinese and the Koreans and do whatever they wanted with them. It it was very similar to the Nazi idea actually. So um, we had to start thinking seriously about our own situation in America. So the civil rights movement kind of grew big after that uh, that awakened the American conscience and Dr. Martin Luther King's arguments for equality were built soundly on our founding documents the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution he appealed to what we knew we all knew was right what we Americans actually believe in our founding documents and that was the basis of his argument and his dream about judging people by the content of their character instead of the color of their skin was so obviously right and true uh, it could not be ignored. So hearts began to change especially after civil rights legislation in the 60's which gave every American equal standing before the law that was passed it went into effect the sky did not fall. So um, people started to discover by experience that segregation was a silly idea all along and the segregated church was not of God but rather an arrogant idea built on a false premise of racial superiority that that was imposed on the text of scripture. The Bible does not teach any difference between any human beings made in the image of God. So let me go back to the Southern Baptist for a minute. So eventually um, major Southern Baptist figures after the civil rights legislation and the culture started to change some of them started openly repenting of supporting segregation in the past. And I'm just going to use one example. Jerry Falwell Sr. who is the founder of the Moral Majority. um, He pastored a 24,000 member church in Virginia. Thomas Road Baptist Church. And he fully believed the theology that the races were ordained of God to be separated and we had to keep them that way. But by 1979 which was actually pretty late. He publicly apologized. He went to uh, Court Street Baptist Church in Lynchburg, a black church, to hear Jesse Jackson speak. And uh, just quoting a history here, Jackson and Falwell met before Jackson spoke, and he agreed to give Falwell five minutes to speak to the congregation. Falwell promised Jackson five minutes to speak to his congregation at Thomas Road Baptist Church the following Sunday. Falwell said, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I was prejudiced. I'm a product of Campbell County here I believed what I was always told but I was wrong so he publicly said that and then he offered a scholarship to any of the black young people in the a free scholarship to Liberty University for any of the young people that were in the congregation and he said um, he said it's easy to say I'm sorry but if you can say it with money it means more well I don't know if that's true but that's the way he felt about it he wanted to do something positive so and then when he went back uh, you know that, that week he took uh, an African-American civil rights advocate from Lynchburg uh, Mr. Thornhill Jr. to lunch to apologize for his past actions and positions and he gave more public apologies after that. So real change was coming to the South and to the Southern Baptist despite a few late holdouts like Bob Jones University and stuff but even that school eventually changed. But l- that long promoted and defended racism was a stain on the honor of Christ and when unbelievers say that white Christians are racist they actually do have something to point to in the past and we need to realize that and acknowledge that. Yes it's out of balance it ignores much of church history Christian history that fought against slavery and racism but they do have something real to point to. A system of brutal oppression that endured for hundreds of years while a large part of an entire population went to church many believing the true gospel and accepting and accepting at the same time oppression of another people as a way of life they accepted that so unbelievers shouldn't have anything to point to right but they do so I'm not saying all southern Christians were monsters they weren't all monsters Christians could be gracious and kind to their inferiors They could be kind to children. The children they would not let attend the schools their children went to. As long as everybody knew their place they were fine. They were not all monsters but they did all practice and uphold the code. You know never speak against the system of inferiority for black Americans. That system of oppression. Never stand up or cry out when lynchings or mob violence occurred even if you weren't a part of it. And all of these people read their Bibles, uh, these Christian, the Christians there, the Southern Baptists, they knew Psalm 82.3, which says, vindicate the weak and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They all knew that verse. They all knew Jeremiah 22.3, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of the oppressor also do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger the orphan or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place. They didn't keep those scriptures. Um, Christians can and have followed the world in doing injustice. That's how twisted our minds can be if we adopt an unbiblical view of the world even while we accept many things that are, are in scripture. So Thankfully things changed and the culture changed rather dramatically. I kind of grew up through that whole period. I actually watched it. So equal standing before the law was guaranteed. The schools were integrated. Dr. King's dream about the content of your character being the standard by which we judge. That seemed like it was really becoming a reality. Racism became an evil in the eyes of almost every American. People of all political persuasions agreed that racism was evil. There were only a few oddballs that kind of hung out, um, KKK people and neo-Nazi types. You know, at one point there were 8 million members of the Ku Klux Klan in America. 8 million people were official members. Nowadays, it's like 3,000. So I would say they've kind of run into a decline there. Yeah, it's just not okay to be racist anymore in America. Everybody regards that as something really evil. So over the past 60 years being a racist has become the worst thing you can be. That's what right people on the right and people on the left all agree that that is a horrible thing. So it's the one thing that will have you turned out of polite society to be a racist. So it's a massive change in our culture and a black American was elected twice to be the president of the United States as you know which says a lot. Then something happened. Something strange. An, a new theory of came into play it was been brewing in academia and it spilled over into the real world and it's called critical race theory or CRT it's quite new originally in the 1960s there was something called critical theory which was a Marxist analysis of culture b- related to economics it claimed that all of our beliefs Our religious views, our political opinions, our morals, the standards of society were all molded by the interests of business, capitalism. Critical theory said capitalism shapes everything that we are and it makes us complicit in the oppression of the lower classes. Marxism always sees everything as a conflict between groups. And traditionally Marxism is about economic groups so there's different classes and they're at tension and war with each other, and that's where the revolution's gonna be born out of all that tension. So you're either in the oppressor class or you're in the oppressed class. You're either a victimizer or you're a victim. That's why in communist countries they can kill millions of people if they belong to a certain class they don't care if you're a wonderful person or not if you belong to that class you're inherently guilty of being an oppressor so the Russians can slaughter all the kulaks or whatever it happens over and over again happened in China the entire educated class was killed during the cultural revolution and tortured but so critical race theory came a little later and it took these ideas and applied these these ideas that was in critical theory about economics and uh, uh, applied them to race and gender also now all the beliefs social structures morals and policies according to critical race theory exist to support whiteness or now they would say whiteness heteronormativity and masculinity they would say all everything's bent to support those things but mainly it's a racial theory whiteness according to critical race theory is not a skin color it's a social construct and everything exists to maintain its position over everyone else that's what critical race theory teaches anyone in this group this white group is a racist oppressor and those in other groups are inherently oppressed and that's why this is often called cultural Marxism and I people say don't call people Marxist but actually that's exactly what it is it is cultural Marxism. Then what happened in our culture in America uh, with the Trayvon Trayvon Martin case and then the Michael Brown case, Black Lives Matter came into prominence. Two of the founding members of Black Lives Matter, there's three, there's two of them, uh, Patrice Kalars and Alicia Garza are avowed Marxists. Uh, Kallars said on video, she said, we do have an ideological frame for this movement. Myself, and Alicia in particular are trained organizers we are trained Marxists. that's what she said a trained Marxist now it's one thing to be a Marxist but a trained Marxist knows how has been trained to pit groups against each other but through critical race theory um, they're doing it with race because typically it would be by class but this is a, a racial thing. So there's the oppressors and there's the oppressed. There's race against race. That's the idea. The Marxist thread is really clear in a book by Ibram X. Kendi. Who, there's two really popular books that are big bestsellers in America. One's called White Fragility. but He wrote a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's, it's the most popular book after White Fragility that's being sold right now. Kendi is a history professor and the founding director of the Boston University Center for anti-racist research and he says this in the book it is impossible to know racism without understanding its intersection with capitalism capitalism and racism are conjoined twins anti-racist policies cannot eliminate class racism without anti-capitalist policies. I keep using the term anti-capitalist as opposed to socialist or communist to include people who publicly or privately question or loathe capitalism but do not identify as a socialist or a communist. So he's using all this Marxist language and he says you can embrace this without calling yourself a communist but that's exactly what it is. Those ideas have completely overtaken academia in America. It's everywhere. In fact my wife was given a book that all the teachers at her school district had to read on racial issues and it flat out calls people comrades in that book. I mean you can't, they didn't even disguise it, the, the Marxist elements in that book. So, um, and then uh, there's, there's PBS for teachers. Public Broadcasting has a website for teachers and it's got a lot of useful things on there. It's funded by our government. They have a whole tutorial on how to bring critical race theory into the classroom. And this is a quote from their online site. An educator in a system of oppression is either a revolutionary or an oppressor. I'm going to say that one more time. An educator in a system of oppression, that's our country, is either a revolutionary or an oppressor. If you're not on board with being a revolutionary, you are de facto an oppressor. You can't have a different opinion about those things. Then he says educators who are anti-racist have the capacity to teach and plan through a critical race lens. It is also essential that we teach our young people about what racism is and model for them how to be an anti-racist. This starts with giving your students sanctuary within four walls to learn practice and speak up against injustice. Students must learn how to be anti-racist and we must teach them that's PBS classroom. So this is an ideological position it's not a racial position. In fact the best thinkers out there who are debunking critical race theory and there are many they're black. I mean those the best the people I listen to and read and who are just really have a grip on this whole thing and, and debunk it they're they're black Americans so I'm talking about scholars of distinction like Thomas Sowell or Glenn Lowry or John McWhorter or Shelby Steele or Larry Elder and in the Christian world somebody like Vodi Baucom um, and young voices like Coleman Hughes who's an atheist and Samuel Say who's a solid Canadian Christian who came from Ghana he's an immigrant from Ghana and uh, in Africa and all of these guys are called horrible horrible names in fact uh, Larry Elder just came out with a great documentary really a worthwhile view it's called Uncle Tom but that's the most polite thing that all of these men are called um, despite their excellent scholarship and their thoughtfulness in addressing these issues Samuel Say interestingly enough is, a, is mainly a pro-life activist that's what he does in Canada he does street pro-life ministry he speaks at different places He said he gets nowhere near the hate from pro-abortion people as he does from Christians who are immersed in critical race theory. Those people despise him. Coleman Hughes, who's an atheist, is a meticulous fact-based analyst of racial issues. And he makes sure that all the claims of racial bias and white privilege are soundly based on clear evidence. And if there's not clear evidence for it, he says it's not valid. Of course he's viciously attacked for that because according to critical race theory uh, reason and fact based thinking are part of whiteness. It actually says that. They actually say that now. Logic and reason and developing arguments. That's a white thing. That's part of whiteness. Whether you're black or not. That's a whiteness. It's a tool of oppression to use reason and facts. What's that got to do with Baptists? Well because critical race theory is all over the church even in the evangelical church and it's splitting the Southern Baptist denomination today. Last year the National Southern Baptist Convention the SBC adopted critical race theory as a tool for examining racial ideas. It was very controversial when they did it um, and people have left the Southern Baptist Convention because they did that and it remains that way. Just a few weeks ago feeling the pressure of the people that were upset about this six Southern Baptist seminary presidents issued a joint statement that said critical race theory is incompatible with scripture. Well a lot of people on the critical race theory side got really upset with that and they're leaving the Southern Baptist church. So many people feel though that it's despite them saying that, that, the, that the seminaries are already teaching critical race theory. Pretty interesting. Matthew Hall. Who's the provost of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He said this publicly at a conference. He said. I am a racist. If you think the worst thing someone can call you is a racist. Then you aren't thinking biblically. I'm going to struggle with racism. And white supremacy. Until the day I die. And get a glorified body. And a sanctified mind. Because I am immersed in a culture. Where I benefit from racism. All the time. That is a completely critical race theory way of viewing the world how can that be I mean if he's a racist he should earnestly repent before God and seek forgiveness from any people of color that he may have harmed God can renew his heart and can take away his racism many believers have repented of racism and found cleansing in the blood of Jesus and had a new heart that gives them uh, a love for all people because the Bible says God puts his love in our hearts and it overflows to uh, all people God pours his love into a humble believer that repents. But you see, in critical race theory, you don't have to fail in love or actually mistreat anyone. If you're in the group, the whiteness group, then you're inherently guilty as it is. So that's why he's saying he'll be a racist till he dies, because even if he's never had a racist thought in his head personally about anybody, he belongs to the group. That's what he means by that. Um, so white privilege is a a key component of critical race theory. You can't escape your racial guilt if you are white. You belong. Period. There's no redemption. There's no end game to this. And that's what um, critical race theory brings to the table. It cancels love and reconciliation. So if you're paying attention to the current church scene, this is a huge issue in the evangelical world right now. It has broken churches apart. It's cracking the Southern Baptist Convention. It's putting tension between believers and pastors and churches. And the thing is, everybody agrees that if there's an injustice, it should be fought. Everybody agrees with that. So that's not what's going on. It's this theory. It's this ideology. That's what's splitting and harming Christians. So what is to be done? Well I think Acts chapter 6 is actually helpful in this particular case. We have here in Acts 6 a complaint of discrimination. There are two groups in the Jerusalem church who do not naturally mingle well together. Let me read from verse 1 of Acts chapter 6. Now at this time while the disciples were increasing in number a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food so uh, the ancient name for for Greece was Hellas so Hellenistic is somebody that's Greek basically they're all Jews here or most of them are but with very different backgrounds so there are Jews that grew up and lived and stayed in the Holy Land and there are Jews from Jewish settlements all over the Roman Empire Jews were spread all over the Roman Empire and grew up there and had children there and were raised there and Greek was their language and Greek was their culture. They had a Greek culture but they, pres- they met in synagogues. They still loved the Lord. They um, you know did the Bible together and all of those kind of things. So Jews in other parts of the Roman Empire could not help thinking more like the culture they grew up in adopting some of their ways to the point where culture in the Holy Land would seem strange to them. And when they visited the Holy Land people that lived there would think they were strange right. Sometimes um, people wonder why God you know needed Paul the Apostle when Jesus already picked 12 Apostles you know why get another one. Well Paul was from Tarsus in Asia Minor not Israel. So he understood the Jewish world that already was interacting with the pagan culture as a minority people. And he was uniquely gifted to reach those Jews and the pagans with the gospel. That's probably why God had Paul write so many New Testament letters compared to Peter and John who are the sort of the heroes of the first part of the book of Acts because there was a very big world outside the culture of the Holy Land Israel proper. The Gospels are, are, are deeply you know Matthew Mark Luke and John they're deeply immersed in the homeland. Jesus lived his whole life in Israel. So, so did the 12 Apostles. And that is the culture of the Gospels. You you can read the Gospels. They're very different than what we're going to be coming to in the book of Acts. Paul's letters are for the wider world. That was his mission field. So you may recall that Jews from the Holy Land, if they traveled outside, when they came home and they reached the border of the Holy Land, they would shake all the Gentile dust off their coats at the border so as not to defile God's land. Well many many Jews lived in Gentile dust all their lives that's what they that was their world except for those rare times they might make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts. Well how do you think Jews who lived their whole lives in foreign lands felt about having their dust shaken off before setting foot in the Holy Land. I don't think they had the same perspective that the the nationalist Jews the homeland Jews had in all places look I've seen this my whole life in all places all countries all cultures people who are different are talked about whether it's tribal or class or anything like that they're they're talked about they're considered strange they're not like us that kind of talk you know made fun of a little bit if, if they're you know good natured people they don't hate people they just mock them and kind of tease about them and things like that that's human nature for groups like that to kind of see each other as strange and different So the Jerusalem church was made up mostly of homeland Jews, Holy Land Jews. But also there were Jews in the Jerusalem church from other parts of the world. Hellenistic Jews, Greek speaking Jews. That was their main language. They might have known a little bit of Hebrew or Aramaic but that was their main language. The people that lived in in the Holy Land their main language was Aramaic or Hebrew and they probably knew some common Greek to interact with people in the marketplace but that wasn't their primary language. So who were these uh, Hellenistic Jews? Well some of them probably heard the gospel at Pentecost and stayed. Other ones may have heard the gospel at one of the uh, later feasts when the go- apostles were out preaching and stayed and became part of the church there. Part They wanted to be part of the Christian community. That was the only Christian community in the world at this particular juncture. So so far in Acts Luke has talked a lot about the unity of the church. In fact, he's only talked about the church as a unified place. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Chapter 4, verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed as anything belonging to him as his own but all things were common property to them it's a beautiful picture we've talked about that in the past here but here in Acts 6 we see an issue that shows a potential rift happening in that unity so the apostles are overseeing these funds that are brought to make sure the poor were taken care of and plainly part of that care was a widow's ministry a a widow without grown male children would have been extremely economically disadvantaged she would have relied on um, either synagogue or temple uh, assistance uh, for food and things like that well the church took care of their own widows they had a ministry to do that the church was happy to support by having a list of ladies who received food allotments on a regular basis daily is the word that's actually used here but there's a complaint It's made to the apostles that some of the widows have been overlooked. And it just so happens they were all Hellenistic ladies. Greek speaking, Greek culture ladies. So it doesn't appear to be an individual overlooked person, but those from a certain group. A group that native Judeans already sort of saw as different. So what do the apostles do? That's what we want to look at. What do they do? Do they get defensive? Do they say, there's not any problem. I don't know what you're talking about. Do they say, hey, you know, you Hellenists, you don't really belong here anyway. I mean, if you're going to make trouble, why don't you start a church of your own somewhere else? They don't do that. What do they do? They immediately attack the problem. Verse two. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren select among from among you seven men of good reputation full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word so first they realize that they haven't done a very good job they're actually honest about that Um, they examine their part in this they say you know what we've kind of blown this we've been stretching ourselves too thin we haven't really kept up with who we should be paying attention to and In fact it was that failure that leads to the the first plan to further develop church governance and that's what we'll talk about next week. So although it's a bit embarrassing that some widows were neglected the apostles bring the situation to the whole church right away. They deal with it immediately. They're going to address it. So they've decided to delegate this responsibility. To whom? Who's going to care for these widows? Well let's find some people that have nothing better to do. No that's not what they do. They don't pick the weakest link. They don't devolve to bureaucrats and just find somebody that's just going to punch paper and keep the thing going. Oh, you know, I have a nephew who just shoots marbles behind the temple all the time. He doesn't do anything. Let's give him that job. No, it's not like that. They ask the congregation to pick seven men and the apostles give them the job requirements for the position in verse three. Men of good reputation, universally recognized as good men, full of the spirit they're Christ centered spiritually mature individuals and of wisdom so these men can read situations well and develop solutions to them so they're respected men they're godly men they're men with discernment and compassion so the best men they pick the best men so do the Apostles pick their family members or give the ministry to their friends no they don't do that they let the congregation select the men that meet these requirements so the congregation does that and in verse five they find these men so let's read verse five the statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas a proselyte from Antioch And these they brought before the apostles and after praying they laid their hands on them. You should note something about the men that the church chose to fulfill this task of taking care of widows. The names are all Greek names. All of them. Now uh, some Judeans may have had Greek names because you know Greco-Roman culture was dominant all over the world they were part of the Roman Empire but almost certainly some of these men were from other places where Greek was their first language and lived according to Greco-Roman culture Nicholas it mentions him last he's a Gentile who converted to Judaism and is now a Christian so he's from Antioch that's outside of the Holy Land it's up north so now these widows had not been deliberately snubbed by the apostles but they had been overlooked and they acknowledged that so they were part of a distinct community and a language group and apparently even the apostles didn't give them consideration to make sure that the widows in that group were taken care of they had neglected them probably completely accidentally but that's what happened now we don't know if they felt slighted or were angry or we just just wanted to graciously approach the apostles and just say hey you know we've got our widows too and they haven't received any of these daily food allotments you guys are putting out they probably did it that way we don't know but um, those who raised the complaint did notice that it was a group a, a group of widows from a certain segment of the church that were being neglected a particular group their Greek Hellenistic group So that could have caused bad feeling. They could have thought they were being discriminated against. In fact, that's what they're basically saying. They're not, we don't know how they brought it up, but that's what the point is. What did the church do? It took immediate action to resolve the matter. And then it was done. So there's a lesson there. If something is demonstrably unfair, it should be immediately addressed and rectified unfairness and injustice should always be opposed immediately and fixed that's true in the church it's true in society equal justice for all as the Americans say when God condemned Israel in the Old Testament for oppressing the poor the widow and the stranger he gave very simple instructions do justice rescue the weak deliver them from the hand of the wicked. We read those verses earlier. Jesus just said, love your neighbor as yourself. And when they said, who's my neighbor? He pointed to a a four, you know, somebody that was a Samaritan uh, and the relationship between a Samaritan and a Jew, another group, somebody from another group. And he said, anybody that's in need is your neighbor. So justice for all. That was the vision of our founding fathers that they gave to us. That was the vision of Dr. King that he held up before us and said you have forgotten us in the dispensing of justice. And that argument found its way home. Things changed. Now is there more to be done in these areas of racial disparities and things like that? Yeah, very likely and we should listen carefully. But critical race theory despises dr. King's dream it it says treating everyone according to the content of their character and not the color of their skin is evil they believe that's evil they say that because it overthrows their their Marxist paradigm for the world it, that dr. King's idea brings peace and revolutions only happen when people are pitted against each other as groups whether it's class or race or anything else So clinging to scripture is critical for us in these times. That will keep us from falling into false theories. Now European racial superiority was a widely believed sinful cultural um, you can call it a theory it was a belief system and that needed to be killed. The Europeans felt that way about the rest of the world and Americans adopted that and took it as our own that was a false theory well critical race theory is also a false theory the world always gets important things wrong (laughs) it just does it does it all the time we can't ever seem to find the right truth that's because men are in rebellion against God so the church has to stand for what God says faithfully and be that light in a dark world should we abandon reason and facts because there is whiteness to it no, and what an insult to people of color that say to say that reason and facts are a white thing. That's not true. That's People all over the world from every culture think that reason and facts are important. We should look at the claims of injustice, I believe, and we should look seriously at them. And if they're valid, we should oppose injustice and seek remedies. If they're not valid, we have to speak the truth, and we're going to be hated for speaking the truth. But we should do that speaking of the truth with love and with humility because we may be wrong about some specific point Christians as we've seen can be blind to certain things so there might be something we don't understand really well and we should listen with love and weigh what people say about things this guy uh, Ibram X. Kendi this popular book how to be an anti-racist he says the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination Discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy for the present discrimination is future discrimination. That's a real peace building idea. Dr. King said, on the other hand, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Two very different visions. Of how to handle a specific problem here's what the Bible says Romans 12 17 never pay back evil for evil to anyone respect what is right in the sight of all men if possible so far as it depends on you be at peace with all men never take your own revenge beloved but leave room for the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord let's pray Lord, may we be people that are eager for justice, a humble people. May we be eager for justice as you have defined it. Let us be patient. Let us be listening. May we be swift to speak truth, swift to help the weak and the oppressed. May we seek the good of all men to the glory of Christ, our Savior. And may we honor you in all that we do and all that we believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. How was that? You might have some questions or want to talk about some of those issues and I'm really open to that. So give me a call. Okay. God bless. Next week we'll look at the same passage but we'll look at it from a church government point of view. It's really an important passage about the development of the church. God bless. We'll see you next time.